I want to welcome you to Center Church, whether you're in person or online. We're glad that you're here. I want to lead us today to start off uh, with a time of lament as a church for the shootings that occurred in Atlanta last week. Um, lament is what God's people do when they see the impact of sin in the world. Uh, we take time to, to grieve it. We take time to lament it as a people. So I just want to lead us to lament. And if you follow the story, you know that there's much to lament. We lament and the malicious violence that was carried out against the Asian American community. We recognize that, man, for many of our Asian American brothers and sisters, they're hurting, they're scared, they're grieving. And we lament that there are mothers and fathers, there are husbands and children who lost loved ones. Suddenly, violently, maliciously, there are empty chairs and at their kitchen tables. We lament that the perpetrator linked his actions to some form of religious conviction. As we've gone through the book of James, we've seen what genuine faith, real faith, real Christianity looks like. It's defined by love of God and his character. It's defined by love of our neighbor and by concern for the marginalized in our society. And what happened in Atlanta was the exact opposite of what is true gospel Christianity. So I just want to invite you to remain standing and bow your heads and, and just join me in a prayer of lament. Heavenly Father, we know that we live in a world that is full of sin, but sometimes we feel it really, really closely and acutely. God, in, in this time, would you help us as we process? Would you help us as we grieve? But I pray for those in our church family and those outside of it that are just feeling this more closely than others, that they would be reminded of the precious truth that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and to the crushed in spirit. God, would you teach us to hope in the day that you will wipe away every tear from every eye and sin will be no more? And God, would you give us wisdom and endurance to work the gospel out in our communities and in our spheres of influence until that day comes? God, give us grace. Give us help. We need you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Um, if you're anything like me, uh, when you follow the news and you see things like what happened in Atlanta, it can feel really overwhelming. Uh, like, man, what, what can I even do in a world full of so much violence and hatred and division? Um, yeah, what, what difference can I make? Uh, but what's interesting is that Jesus often described the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. He said something that is seemingly small and insignificant by the power of God can grow into something that changes the entire landscape. Uh, and the same is true for you and for simple, seemingly small acts of faithfulness because of what you believe about Christ changing how you live and how you interact with other people. And in a couple of weeks, we're hosting uh, an Easter service outside at Stonefield Common Shopping Center. And one of the reasons we're doing that is we want to take the good news of the res resurrection into the heart of our community so that people who might not be comfortable coming into a church building might come. And one simple way that you can, man, be faithful, that you can make a difference is signing up to serve. You can sign up to serve, to be a friendly face as somebody drives up, to help somebody get a cup of coffee, to help someone find a chair. You can, you can serve others, and in that one simple way, you can be like that mustard seed that Jesus described. And a lot of times we think, oh, Josh, what difference can that make? You know, that's not that big of a deal. But you'd be surprised. So um, a couple of months ago, I was talking to a couple, and I said, hey, is it your first time here at Center Church? And they kind of sheepishly grinned at one another, and they said, well, it's our first time at 
the, it's not our first time at the building, but it is our first time in the building. You know, okay, what is that? You know, so tell me more. Um, they were so nervous about coming to church that they drove up the week before and they parked in the back of the parking lot and they just watched how we interacted with one another. They just like watched how people came up, what it was like, and I guess they were just, they were encouraged by the atmosphere that we had, that the welcoming nature of our volunteers, that they decided, yeah, like that gave us the courage and the confidence to come inside and to participate in worship with you guys. That is what you have the power to do on Easter. You have the power to help somebody take a step and come hear the gospel that might otherwise be unwilling to do so. So I just want to say to you, don't miss that opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity to make a difference by being a friendly face, by serving somebody coffee and a donut, by helping set up chairs. Don't miss the opportunity to make a difference in somebody's live life this Easter, okay? And the way that you can do that, if you want to serve, is you just go to our website, and underneath the Easter at Stonefield banner, there's a button that says sign up to serve. Click on it, and it'll give you all the information you need. There's lots of different ways to serve. You can serve on Saturday. You can serve on Sunday. You can park cars. You can greet. You can direct people to seats. You can serve with your kids. You can serve with friends. There's all kinds of different ways to serve, and so I just want to encourage you, don't miss that opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity to make a difference because, man, when the church is all faithfully doing small things, we're planting that seed. God often does really incredible things and changes the landscape around us, okay? So go to that website, sign up to serve. It's going to be, man, a great Sunday. With that uh, being said, you can open up your Bibles to James chapter 3, to James chapter 3. Here's what we know. For better or for worse, the words spoken to us and the words spoken by us have great power. For better or for worse, the words spoken to us and the words spoken by us have incredible power. How many of us are still walking around in our hearts with what a coach said to us in the seventh grade? Right? Yeah, thank you. Testify, right? How many of us are still influenced by what our mom or our dad or our grandma said about us when we were kids, for better or for worse, right? How many of us are still struggling with that comment that our coworker made about, man, you're really bossy? Right, like how many of us are struck with insecurity and fear or anger and anxiety because of the words that maybe a toxic ex spoke over our lives? For better or for worse, the words spoken to us and the words spoken by us have power. They shape our relationships. They shape our marriages. They shape our kids and they shape our church. Right, but the, the reality is we don't often think about our words that carefully, do we? I mean, the, the simple truth is that we live in a cultural moment that celebrates unrestrained and immediate self-expression, right? You should just speak your mind immediately without introspection. But unfortunately, we often speak our mind or we text it, post it, tweet it, send it without considering the damage done by that self-expression. And the church is, is, is not exempt from this. I would suggest to you that more division has been wrought in the church, more discouragement has been heaped on the leaders of the church, and more hurt has been done to members of the church by careless words than by anything else that we do. The reality is that churches that were once healthy and vibrant and making a difference in their community have fallen apart because of gossip and divisiveness and backbiting, which is why all throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, watch out for Satan's devices. He's going to make you levitate and make your head spin around. He says, watch out. He will sow discord and division among your midst, which is why in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, you must be eager to pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I would suggest to you that there is no greater way to pursue unity in the church or to make a difference in the world than to be careful and intentional with our words. The reality is words have been a big deal ever since there's been a church. I mean, James is writing to a group of people 2,000 years ago 
about words. And here's why. God never changes and people don't change that much. Right? Like people were running their mouth in James chapter 3. Okay? Like people were gossiping and backbiting and things were getting out of hand. And James is like, hey, we really need to be aware of the power of our words. And so what James is going to do is he's going to help us understand the nature of our words, what's going on with our words, and then what we can do to get them under control. Look at verse 1 with me. This is what he says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So James begins with the warning for would-be pastors and teachers in the church. He says, if you have a position of influence and authority in the church, you will be judged with greater strictness. Your words will be judged with greater strictness. Your words will impact the church, which leads us to the first thing we learn. Number one, our words shape our church. Our words shape our church. And you might say to me, well, yeah, Josh, that's for teachers. That's for pastors. And I would say, yes, it is definitely at least for teachers and pastors. It's definitely for people like me or Pastor Justin or your MC leader, people who are in a formal position of teaching and authority in the church. Our words will be judged with great strictness because our words impact our church. I did some rough uh, math this week, and between preaching and other teaching that I do, I speak for 120 hours every year publicly, 120 hours. Now, I don't say that to impress you. I say that so that you will pray for me. Because here's the reality. It is very, very difficult to speak for that long without saying something dumb, okay? Without saying something that's insensitive, without saying something that's inconsiderate, without making some sort of illustration that's offensive. I really genuinely need you to pray for me. I was talking to a friend of mine after the first service, and I said, you know, in Major League Baseball, the best team wins 100 games and loses 60. And I'm like, man, it's just not likely that I'm going to go 120 for 120 in my hours like this year. I'm probably going to say something that is a mistake, and I just need you to be gracious, and I need you to pray for me that I'd be really careful with my words, because I want my words to glorify Christ and to build you. So I need you to pray for me. I also need you to pray for me, because it's really hard not to get discouraged. To be honest with you, it's really hard not to get discouraged as a pastor, because unfortunately what's happened in our society is that we no longer think public figures have feelings. Right? We think public figures aren't real people. They're just public figures that we're free to criticize as much as we want. And I sometimes get emails from people or people make comments to me. And I'm like, man, like I'm your friend. Like I'm like your brother in Christ. I'm not just some digital person. You know, I'm not just like some guy you see on the internet. Right? Unfortunately, our culture has created this like say whatever you want, whenever you want, how harshly you want because they're not real people. And that's really, really hard. And to be honest with you, what's harder though is not kind of the criticism. It's very tempting to me to preach in a way to avoid criticism. It's very tempting to preach what people want to hear, not what God's word says. Because if I preach what people want to hear, I'm not going to get criticized. I'll probably grow the church. I will get more people in here, but I won't build more Christians. Because what you and I need is not the words that we want to hear. We need God's word, which sometimes is encouraging and sometimes is really challenging. But I'll be honest, it's tempting to say, oh, I don't want to talk about that, but it's like in the text. So pray for me that I would have the courage and I would have the wisdom to preach God's word in a way that is appropriate, in a way that is sensitive, but also in a way that is bold and is clear. Right? So pray for me. Pray for Pastor Justin. Pray for anyone that teaches in some sort of position of authority and influence in our church because our words shape our church. But here's the thing. So do yours. So do yours, because the reality is there's not a single person in this room that doesn't have some measure of influence in our church. Do you know how people figure out what kind of church this is? By watching you. People come in here and they say, what kind of church is Center Church? Is this the kind of church where we build one another up? Is this the kind of church 
Man, will we outdo one another in showing honor? Is this the kind of church where we pray for and we respect and we build up our pastors and our leaders and we're grateful for them? Is this the kind of church where we subject our preferences for the sake of the mission? Is this the kind of church that we fight for unity and we put gossip to death and we refuse to backbite? Or is this the kind of church where we grumble? Is this the kind of church where we nitpick sermons and worship songs? Is this the kind of church where we, man, talk with that girl in our group about that other girl in our group that really drives us crazy? Is this the kind of church when we go, I have to serve in kids again, right? Is this the kind of church where we go, I can't believe they're talking about money again? Like, is this the kind of church where we, we foster suspicion towards our leaders? Or is this the kind of church where we trust God and we honor one another? Every single time you act and speak, you are teaching someone. It's just a reality. And so if we want to build a healthy church culture, it's going to take every single one of us. Because here's the truth, the culture of our church is determined by the people of our church. The culture of our church is much less determined by me, and it's much more determined by you. And so what James is calling us to is saying, hey, be very careful with your words, because they have a lot of power. They have the power to shape your church. So I'd say, let's build the kind of culture that we want to be a part of, and that is going to be attractive to the world. Let's build a healthy church culture where we give each other the benefit of the doubt where we outdo one another in showing honor, where we fight for unity, where we refuse to backbite and to gossip. Let's build that kind of culture. Verse two, for we all stumble in many ways. So James is saying, look, we have all said things that we regret. We have all been insensitive. We had all made mistakes. So be gracious towards one one another. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So not perfect in the sense of without sin, but perfect in the sense of mature and godly. So James is saying that control of your words is one of the signs of Christian maturity in your life. So if your words are under control and you're using your words in a way that glorifies God, it's like, man, that's awesome. You are mature in your faith. If not, it doesn't matter how much Bible knowledge that you have. It doesn't matter how many church services you go to. James is saying, hey, you are not mature and godly. So if we want to grow in godliness, we have to learn how to get our words under control and use them in a way that honors Christ, right? And that is what James is going to do. He's going to teach us about our words so that we can learn how to control them. Look at verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Here's the idea. A horse is a huge animal. Has anybody ever ridden a horse? You don't realize how big a horse is, so you're on one, right? And then you're like, this kid could destroy me. And yet, because of a little tiny piece of metal called a bit in the horse's mouth, you can control it. Have you ever thought about how ridiculously small jockeys are? Jockeys are like the smallest humans out there, and yet they're directing these gigantic horses. How? This little piece of metal in their mouth. James is saying... Same way with your words. Or think about ships. Ships are huge. I mean, there are aircraft carriers that are basically floating cities. All right, so I was looking up the USS uh, Eisenhower is um, 91,000 tons. I don't, even, I don't even understand what that, that means. You know, like 91,000 tons. It's 1,000 feet long. It has, a, it has an engine with 280,000 horsepower. It can hold 6,000 people and 100 aircraft. Right? That is bigger than my hometown, okay? Like, you can fit all of Stephen City onto the USS Eisenhower with room to spare, all right? And yet, that gigantic ship is directed, its entire course is set by a tiny rudder, by something that is less than a tenth of a percent of the size of the ship. James is saying, it works the same way with your tongue. 
Your tongue, which is small, directs the entirety of your life, which leads us to point number two. Our words direct our lives. Our words direct our lives. How so? When you put a feeling or a thought into words, you give it power. You just absolutely do. It's like giving oxygen to a spark. Let me give you a silly example. You ever been in a bad mood and you started listening to upbeat music, singing it out loud? What happens? Your mood gets better, right? I remember this as a teenager. I would be feeling a little angsty. So I would put on like Simple Plan and Good Charlotte. Anybody remember them? Right? Thank you, Hannah. Right? And all of a sudden, I go from being a little angsty to a lot angsty, right? I'm like, nobody understands me, you know? Like, what happened? I put those words, I put those thoughts and feelings into words. In the same way, whatever you feed with words is going to get bigger in your life, and it's going to direct your life. It's just absolutely and utterly true, which is why the Bible calls us to be very careful with our words and to hear and to speak the word of God to one another, to hear and to speak the truth of God's word to one another. Now, our culture values unlimited and unrestrained self-expression. But God offers different counsel. Let me give it to you. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. So if you're talking a lot, it is likely that you are transgressing God's law. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent, prudent, wise, thoughtful. You see that word restrain? It means that our words are like a dog on a leash that we have to restrain or else we're going to get dragged in directions that we don't want to go. Now, that doesn't mean that you should endure abuse if it's happening. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't step up to, man, speak out against unethical or unjust behavior. In fact, Proverbs 31 explicitly tells us to speak out against those things. But if we're honest with one another, the vast majority of things that we complain and grumble about do not fall into that category, do they? They fall into the category of personal preference or girl that irritates me or professor that's frustrating, or my parents don't get it, right? The vast majority of things fall into a different category. So we would just be wise, the Bible says, to restrain our words so they don't drag us off into a direction that we don't want to go. Now, maybe you are a verbal processor. Anybody got any verbal processors out there? Thank you. I'm a verbal processor. And you're like, Josh, if I restrain my words, I will explode. That, do you want me to explode on you? That is what will happen. Um, let me give you some advice that I got that's really helpful about the difference between venting and processing, Okay. Venting is all about them, what they did, how inconsiderate they are, how irrational they are, how you can't believe what they did. Venting almost always leads to more anger. And it's really easy to demonize someone else when you vent. You hardly ever make any progress. And honestly, venting is, is usually just a nice word for sinning. Like, oh, I'm venting. No, we're sinning, right? We're, we're, we're gossiping. We're tearing somebody down. We're maligning somebody that's made in God's image. Now, contrast that with processing processing is all about me and why what he did makes me so mad why is it that when my boss does that i get so frustrated why is it that when she acts that way it irritates me so much why is it that my in-laws drive me so crazy you see when you process when you keep the focus on yourself it gives you an opportunity to understand your heart and you say oh man i get so mad when my boss doesn't recognize the work that i do because i take a lot of my value from work if I didn't care so much about, about being acknowledged at work, it wouldn't bother me when he doesn't acknowledge me. Man, I get so mad when my in-laws, man, make comments that they do because I'm really insecure. And I feel like I'm not like, you know, I'm not really like the, the woman they wish their son would have married. Man, that's a, that's a me issue, right? I get, I get so put out by that girl in my missional community because, man, I feel like she's always getting all the attention that I kind of want. You see, when you process, you have to do the uncomfortable work of dealing with yourself. 
right? It's what Jesus would say, hey, take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the splinter out of someone else's eye. I don't know about you, but I would much rather be a splinter taker outer in those moments than a log taker outer. But Jesus says, hey, you can't help anybody else grow until you deal with your own logs. And so the next time that you are fired up because of whatever somebody did at work or somebody did in class or somebody did in your missional community or in your family, man, draw yourself back to processing. When you hear yourself using the they pronoun, the them pronoun, the him, the her, you'll be like, nope, me, my heart, God, help me to understand what is going on in my heart and why this is bothering me so much. Man, this is really important because, man, just like bits direct horses and rudders direct ships, your words will direct your life. And I want them to direct you where you want to go. All right, verse five. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. A forest that has been growing for decades can be destroyed very quickly by a single spark. This actually happened last fall. So in the California wildfires, there was one fire that burned 500,000 acres. And they traced the fire back to a camper who used a metal hammer to strike in a metal tent peg. He struck the tent peg, didn't even know it. A spark was created and it started the entire fire. Think about that. 500,000 acres destroyed by a single spark coming off a tent peg. James says, look, your words are the same way. Your words seem small, they seem insignificant, but they can destroy your life. He says not only that, your tongue can set your whole life on fire. I mean, it can destroy things that you value, and your tongue itself is set on fire by hell, which leads to point number three. Our words can destroy our lives. Our words can destroy our lives. Look, careers have toppled. Marriages have crumbled. Conflicts have started, and decades of self-loathing have begun because of carelessly spoken words. I mean, can't some of you trace the drama in your family back to like one Thanksgiving dinner, right? Like, can't you trace the hardship in some of your relationships back to like one night where you said some things that you wish you wouldn't have said? Man, our words have incredible power to destroy our lives. I listened to an interview with the founder of Lululemon. And man, he spent years of his life building Lululemon from the ground up and turning it into this international force and then his board of directors removed him from the company after he spoke several insensitive and inconsiderate words in an interview. I mean, the man's entire career was toppled by some sinful words, right? Our words can destroy our lives. You've seen this. You've seen this in relationships, haven't you? Like, there are things that people can say to you that they can't, they can't get back, right? You can't see that person in the same way after they said it that way. Maybe you've said some things that you wish you could get back, but you can't. And that relationship has never been the same ever since that argument happened, ever since you said that thing that you said when you were so mad, and you're like, I didn't really mean that, but you can't undo it. Man, our words have an incredible power to destroy things in our lives. Our words can destroy some of the most important things in our lives. And James says the reason for that is because, man, your tongues are set on fire by hell. My tongue is set on fire by hell. Now, I think all of us say, okay, like, James, aren't you being a little over the top here? But just think about it for a second. This is a little bit of a weird illustration. But like, if you were a devil, what would you do? I would focus on the thing I could do the most damage with. I would focus on the thing that I could use to hurt the speaker, the person spoken to, and the person spoken about. I wouldn't focus on, you know, the, the airplanes on the aircraft carrier. I wouldn't focus on the guns on the aircraft carrier. I wouldn't focus on, you know, the, the, the cabins on the aircraft carrier. I'd focus on the rudder. 
Because if I can direct that rudder, I can direct the whole ship. If I can direct that bit in the horse's mouth, I can direct that whole animal. If I can influence your words, I can destroy your whole life. That's what James is saying. That is what James is saying. Look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Man, it just keeps getting worse. Right? James says, look, human beings have a marvelous ability to tame animals. I mean, if you want to waste a couple hours of your life, type in elephants playing soccer on YouTube, okay? Fascinating stuff. Squirrels can water ski. I'm sure you've seen that. Um, man, parrots can be trained to sing Journey, praise God, right? Like, there's an amazing amount of things that we can train animals to do, but none of us, James says, can tame our tongues. None of us. And now at this point, maybe you're like me and you're like, okay, you're like you're objecting a little bit in your spirit. You're like, all right, sure, I've said some things I wish I could get back, but this is just too much. This is just hyperbo- you know, hi- hyperbolic, like this is just you being a preacher. All right, let me, let me just give you a couple of evaluation questions, okay? Be honest with yourself. Number one, Have you been hurt more by people's fists or by people's words? Number two, have you hurt other people more with your fists or with your words? Now, certainly there are are probably cases where, man, physical abuse has been involved. But I would say for most of us, the answer is probably our words. We've been hurt more by other people's words, and we've hurt other people more with our words than with any other part of our body. Or if you're still not convinced, let me give you a little assignment, okay? Let me just give you an assignment to, to, to see how good you are at taming your tongue. Between now and next Sunday, I want you to try to do six things. You ready? You can write these down. Number one, don't complain. She, she's like, you've only named one, man. Like, you've got five left. Don't complain. Number two, don't boast about anything. Not even subtle boasting. So basically, we should all delete our Instagram accounts, Right? So don't boast about anything, even subtly. Number three, don't gossip. Don't, and now, gossip, gossip means never say behind somebody's back what you wouldn't say to their face. Do you know what flattery is? Flattery is when you say something to somebody's face you never say behind their back. Gossip is when you say to, behind somebody's back what you never say to their face. So don't gossip. Don't say anything that you wouldn't be happy with that person hearing. Don't text anything. Don't post anything. Right? Don't Snapchat anything. Don't do anything that you wouldn't want that person to hear. So don't gossip. Uh, number four, don't cut someone down even a little bit. Right? Don't cut somebody down with sarcasm. Don't cut somebody down with some sort of snide remark. Don't cut some down, somebody down with some snarky comment. Number five, don't defend yourself. Don't defend yourself. Number six, affirm other people daily. Can we all just admit that we failed a six-person, right? Like, maybe somebody will come back to me next week and be like, I did it. I, I just think that when we're honest with ourselves and we actually take the time to dig into it, we're like, man, I actually don't have a lot of control over my tongue. And here's what I found about myself. Maybe this is true for you. I am, I am the least guarded with my words with people I trust the most. You notice that? Like with Meredith, my wife, right? With people that I'm like confident aren't going to judge me, it's like the guards come off. What does that say about my heart? It says that my heart's not really that pure. I'm just afraid of the consequences, right? What does it say about us if when we're with the people, like our families that we trust the most, man, we're just running off at the mouth, right? We've got all the opinions about all the things, right? We have to ask the question, what does that say? What does that say about our hearts? Man, it is very, very hard to tame our tongues. So James is trying to build the case to to make you feel how important this is and how hard it is. He's like, look, it can destroy your life. It shapes your church. Man, it directs where you're going. And he says, you can't tame it. And you're like, Ugh. 
So he's going to teach us one more thing about the nature of words, and in that, he's going to show us the solution. He's going to show us where we have hope. Look at verse 9. With it, or our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and yet with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It is a fundamental contradiction when somebody comes into church and they, and they worship and they praise God or they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, like I love the Lord, I love Christ, and then they turn around and they slander somebody or they speak hateful words to someone or they speak racist words to someone right? or, they, or they tell disparaging jokes about someone or they gossip or pass a piece of you know, juicy news along or they grumble and complain. James is saying, look, it's inconsistent to profess to love God but then to speak with antagonism towards the people that he's made in his image. This should not be so, my brothers. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is obvious, right? Salt water and fresh water can't come from the same source. You should not go looking for olives on a fig tree. You won't find them, right? What we learn from the world around us is that a product is always consistent with its source. A product is always consistent with its source. Well, the same is true when it comes to our words. You see, what we say matters because our words reflect our hearts. What we say matters because our words reflect our hearts. And here, James is drawing directly on Jesus. I mean, this is directly from the teaching of Jesus. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Which leads to our last point. Number four, our words reveal our hearts. Our words reveal our hearts. What I say and what you say always reveals our heart. What comes up in the bucket is what was down in the well. There's no way around it. What comes up in the bucket is what is down in the well. So if our words are critical, if they're sarcastic, if they're full of suspicion, if they're full of condemnation, it means that our hearts are that way. And I know that's pretty direct, but I don't know what other application to make from this, that if you look at your words and say, my words are not defined by the fruit of the Spirit, it means your heart is not defined by the fruit of the Spirit. It does not matter how many Bible verses you know. Unfortunately, there are churches all over the country full of people who know Bible verses and who have filthy mouths. Not filthy in the sense of four-letter words, filthy in the sense of gossip and backbiting and grumbling and suspicion. Friends, that is not the fruit of the Spirit. That is not eagerly pursuing the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. James would say that is from the fires of hell. And unfortunately, you go out in our culture and you look at Christians online and they're just spewing forth language. And I'm like, how do you say you love God and yet you speak that way? Right? Our words reveal our hearts. What James is saying is that the real problem isn't my tongue, it's my heart. The real problem isn't my tongue, it's my heart. Down in verses 13 through 18, James contrasts a wicked person with a righteous person. And he says, a wicked person is full of bitterness, jealousy, and selfish ambition. And because they're full of that, it comes out in their words. Contrastly, a righteous person is full of peace and gentleness and mercy and sincerity. And because she is full of those things, it comes out in her words. So if we want to change our words, we need to apply the truth of the gospel to our hearts. It's not enough to just get some better techniques to controlling what you say. What we need to do is we need to change our hearts through the gospel. For example, why is there bitterness in your heart? Why is there bitterness in your heart? Because you believe 
that you don't have something that you deserve. You believe you don't have something that you deserve. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's a certain job. Maybe it's a certain friend group. Maybe it's a certain personality. But you believe you should have something that you don't, and so you become bitter. I'm the same way. Well, what does the gospel say to us about that? The gospel says what you deserve is eternal condemnation. But what you've been given is total forgiveness, adoption into the family of God, and a royal inheritance. It is impossible to foster bitterness in your heart when you're believing that truth about the gospel. Because instead of saying, I don't have what I deserve, you say, no, I'm, I'm far better off than I deserve. God has not been fair to me. God has been gracious to me. What about jealousy? Why do we have jealousy in our hearts? Why do you have jealousy in your heart? I'm getting a little close now. Why are you jealous of that girl? Why are you jealous of that guy? Why are you jealous of that couple? Why are you jealous of that neighborhood? Why are you jealous of that grad program? Why are we full of jealousy? Why is it that we have more material goods than we've ever had, and yet we are the least contented society in history? Come on. You know it's true? It's because we're full of jealousy. Why? Because we believe this fundamental lie. Someone else has something that I need to be happy. She has it, and I need it to be happy. She's prettier than me. She's smarter than me. She has the boyfriend that I wish I had. He, ha he makes more money than me. He has a better house than me. He has the marriage that I wish that I had, and I need that to be happy. What does the gospel say to that? You don't need any of that to be happy. You were not created to be satisfied by products. You were created to be satisfied in the presence of God. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's presence and approval of you is all that you need for everlasting joy and peace. And you have been given that through Christ. If you are in Christ, you've been given that. It is impossible for the gospel to go deep into your heart and not for it to drive out jealousy. Because all of a sudden you say, man, I'm so grateful that he has that house. I'm so grateful that she has that ability. I'm so grateful that they got that promotion or they got recognized at school or whatever it is because you don't need those things to be happy. You don't need those things to be satisfied because you have in Christ the deepest satisfaction of your soul. What about selfish ambition? Oh, I'm talking to UVA students now. Y'all made it to UVA because of selfish ambition, right? Why are we full of selfish ambition? Why does America celebrate people that stomp on other people to get ahead? Because we believe that if we don't watch out for number one, no one will. And that we believe that goodness and mercy and joy in our lives comes from getting to the top of the mountain. What does the gospel say? The gospel says, hey, I've got a hard truth for you. In the one area of your life that matters most, there was nothing you could do for yourself. And so Jesus came and did it for you. Woo. There was nothing that you could do. I don't care how hard you worked, you were not getting into heaven. And so what did Jesus do? He left heaven, he came to earth, and he thought of your interests before his own. And now that you are in him, Jesus calls you to not look after your own interests, but to look after the interests of others, trusting that God will look after your interests. If God cared enough to look after your interests on the cross, you can trust that he's going to look after your interests in your career, right? He's going to look after your interests at college. He's going to look after your interests in your neighborhood, in your family. You can trust that God looked after your interests on the cross. He's not going to abandon you now. All of a sudden, selfish ambition starts to wither. And we don't have to cut other people down. Isn't that why we cut other people down? Because their success makes us feel like a failure? Well, we don't have to do that. We can celebrate their success because their success does not change the approval that we have from our Heavenly Father. You see, the key to controlling your words is saturating your heart in the gospel.
The key to controlling your words is saturating your heart in the gospel. You cannot control your tongue on your own, but you can in Christ. You can in Christ. And there's a powerful illustration of this from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the early church has been praying for 50 days. So it's been 50 days since Jesus died and rose again. And he said, hey, wait and pray until the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they're all together and they're praying in this upper room. And suddenly the room is filled with a Uh, a sound of a mighty rushing wind. And suddenly, tongues of fire descended from heaven onto the early church. This is the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's called the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And as a result, the apostles go out and they start preaching the gospel with power and boldness and authority. And do you know what happened? A group of very diverse, different, and opinionated people came together under one banner, the banner of the cross. And they loved one another, and they served one another, and they prayed with one another. And the community that they formed was so powerful that it says in the text that people were being added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. What happened? They had a fire on their tongue. It was just the right kind of fire. You see, we need fire on our tongues, just the right kind. Not the fire of hell that destroys and breaks down and pulls people down, is full of jealousy and bitterness and selfish ambition, but the fire of heaven that refines and warms and empowers. You and I and this church need the fire of God on our tongues. And here's what's amazing if you know your Bible. The fire of God before Acts chapter 2 is always bad. You do not want to be near the fire of God. Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah consumed by the fire of God. 2 Kings chapter 18, the prophets of Baal consumed by the fire of God. God comes down to Mount Sinai, the entire mountain is consumed in flames, and he says, do not come up on this mountain or you will die. Why? Because God in his holiness will consume you in his fire if you go into his presence on your own. So how is it that the fire of God could fall on the church and instead of consuming them, it could empower them? How could that happen? Because the fire of God's judgment had already fallen on Jesus. You see, the flame of God's wrath licked around Jesus on the cross so that you and I could be filled with the empowering fire of God. Our words are powerful. Our words can be destructive. You've seen that in your life. I've seen it in mine. I've seen it in the church. But they don't have to be. If we are filled with the truths of the gospel, if the power of God's Holy Spirit is on our tongues, all of a sudden our words can be life-giving. Our words don't yank people down, but they build people up. Our words don't sow discord and division, but they produce unity in the church. And our words can be the means that God uses to bring somebody from death to life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You can be used by God through his spirit to see other people saved from condemnation and brought in the family of God. This church can be used by God through his spirit to see a community transformed by the spirit of God. And it all starts with our words. So friends, let us put away malice, let us put away bitterness, let us put away jealousy, let us put away selfish ambition because of the good news of the gospel. And instead, let us pick up on our tongues the empowering, life-changing word of Christ, and let's build the kind of church that you want to be a part of and is attractive to this community. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is truth. Your word saved me. Your word saves your people. It builds your church. Make us a people rooted and grounded in your word and make us a people that speak words of life to one another. Words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of hope. Sometimes, God, words of challenge, but always seasoned with grace. Make us a people that speak the truth in love to one another and make us people that are not afraid to speak the good news of the gospel to our community. 
Father, we have all failed in this in so many ways. My first, I, me, I just first among. And so God, we ask for your forgiveness and for your grace and for your empowering spirit to be here for the sake of your name. Lord, we love you. We need you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. These things, would you stand and sing with us?